Hello, everyone. It is trained up. Welcome to the Ruth Winter Lecture Series. I'm Professor Sundberg from the Department of Economics, Business, and Finance in the Environmental Studies Program. Two things that go really well together, even though a lot of people don't believe it. <laughs> Welcome to our Ruth Winter Lecture. It's named in honor of Ruth Winter, who served as the Director of Student Activities here at Lake Forest College for 23 years. She brought a lot of really prominent speakers to the college, just an extraordinary woman who brought extraordinary people here talking about extraordinary things. And we're very pleased to honor her service and her memory with this series. I want to mention that her son, Wally Winter, and his partner, Ellen, are here. Wally? Wally and our speaker tonight were actually college classmates, which means we have a Ruth Winter lecture speaker who actually knew Ruth Winter, which doesn't happen all that often, and that's, that's a nice plus as well. We're very thrilled to have Gus Beth here to talk to us tonight. Gus has looked at a lot of really important environmental issues from a lot of very different and interesting angles incredible perspective. I have about 40 minutes of remarks that I'm going to have to do in two, so I'll just get to the high points. Uh, Gus and Wally uh, both attended Yale, a small liberal arts college somewhere in Connecticut. Uh, after graduating from Yale, Gus was a Rhodes Scholar and went to Yale Law School. After law school, he was a clerk for Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black. And after, you know, then he was kind of casting around for a few things to do, and he thought, well, I'll just get a grant from the Ford Foundation and start something called the National Resources Defense Council. <coughs> so he and some friends started the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is a very effective public interest law firm on environmental issues. And so one phase of his storied career is his work in advocacy and research with the NRDC and also with the World Resources Institute, which he also founded because he uh, he's done a lot of work with various political organizations, including chairing President Carter's Council on Environmental Quality, <coughs> doing work in the environmental area with President Clinton as part of the transition team, and chairing the United Nations Development Group and their work on environmental issues, as well as working on various federal and, and task forces on different environmental issues. So, so far, ad advocacy and research political organizations. He's had a long and storied career as an educator, as the dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and also as a professor at the Vermont Law School, perhaps the top environmental law program in the country. And so the fourth, I guess it's leg of the chair, I usually say the third leg of the stool, but the fourth leg of the chair. Uh, writing and Outreach, he's just published his seventh book, Two of his books are available on the table in the back, and I'm sure you'd be happy to take a few minutes to sign them if you're interested. A lot of people describe the work that Gus has done and, and the thinking that he's done as, well, they use terms like progressive and radical, even revolutionary. Some might say subversive. You like the subversive one? That's kind of cool, I think. Uh, what I hope is that 20 years from now we look back and instead of all those words we use the word transformational. Please welcome Gus Beth.
very much. And thank all of you for coming out. I, uh, it's a beautiful day today, wasn't it? <coughs> I, uh, I usually run over and uh, didn't have my watch one time when I did that at Yale when I was dean there. And I apologized to the students. And one of them stood up and said, it's OK, Dean Smith, there's a calendar on the wall behind you. <laughs> Uh, it's an honor to, to give uh, the Ruth one a, a lecture. Uh, I was privileged to know her, but not well, but I know what a wonderful person she was, not only because of the work that she did here at this wonderful college, but also because she gave us Wally Winter. And uh, I think Wally is the most uh, deeply uh, humanitarian person that I've had the privilege of knowing in, in my life. And uh, what a, so that uh, is a great testament to her and his bringing forth all of the books from these uh, outstanding people uh, to as a gift to the college is a great gesture. And I am really mortified that I'm in that number somehow. I would uh, love to think I was the caliber of people who I've seen on the list of lecturers here, uh, but I seriously doubt it. Uh, I want to speak with you uh, tonight about the need for a new environmentalism uh, in our country. And uh, along the way, I want to uh, revive, if I can, two uh, lost legacies uh, from the early years of, of the environmental uh, movement. And, uh, so I want to begin by um, saying that we really have a paradox on, on our hands. Um, we've got to face the, this paradox of our environmental organizations get stronger and more vigorous and better funded and, uh, and, and more victories. Uh, uh, and yet, uh, 45 years after the first Earth Day, we find ourselves on the cusp of ruining the planet. We get stronger and better but uh, we are faced with a mounting of <coughs> some of the most difficult environmental challenges imaginable. Uh, and you know, the global scale issues, which I have written a book about, which fortunately for you is not on the back table. Uh, but you know, the climate change issue is coming at us very hard. And it's going to be this, uh, really a, a great tragedy what's going to happen before we turn around and, and uh, the issue and, and address it with the strength that we the biodiversity loss is uh, horrendous around the world. Uh, forests, uh, fisheries, uh, freshwater, agricultural soils, uh, toxics, these are all huge global scale uh, issues. Uh, I taught international environmental law at Yale for some years, and it was such a veil of tears that I had to quit. I couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, we have all these treaties, but they don't work. They're toothless. and. and they just don't do the job, even approximately. And we think, well, maybe we've done a good job here in the U.S. Maybe global scale things are terribly bad. But, uh, but the truth is that uh, from one third to a half of the freshwater bodies in the U.S. still don't meet the standards of fishable and swimmable waters that we set in 1972. Um, a third of Americans still suffer from un unhealthy uh, air. Um, we've protected uh, uh, an area uh, 
the size of New York State in, in designated wilderness, but we've lost an area the size of California uh, to development, for, to conversion to urban and industrial uh, uses. Uh, we're still losing wetlands at a, an estimated 100,000 acres a year of wetland loss. Uh, a third of the fish and amphibians and flowering plants are threatened in our country with extinction. 15 to 20 percent of the birds and mammals and reptiles are threatened. And that's before really factoring in the damage that climate change uh, is going to do. Um, if you look at the toxics release inventory that EPA maintains, you find that uh, you know, we're, we're putting several billion pounds of toxic waste to the environment each year. 40% uh, of it released to the air and the water. And, and our failure to act on the climate issue, I think, is the single largest dereliction of civic responsibility in the history of the Republic. Uh, so these issues are uh, hard uh, upon us, and despite all the efforts uh, that we've made, uh, the mighty force of environmental destruction still rules our day. So we've grown and grown, we're winning more and more battles, but we're losing the planet. And so something, I think, is terribly wrong with, with this picture. Uh, you know, uh, more of the same is not going to provide the answer. I was associated with one environmental, main, main environmental group which was developing a new strategic plan and I, I looked at the categories they were working with. And uh, air pollution, water pollution, climate change, biodiversity. And I said, you know, these, except for the climate change issue, these are the same issues that were the categories we used when we started in 1970. So something uh, I think we need to think in terms of finding the new environmentalism. We, more of the same is, is not going to work. The little group that we started, the Natural Resources Defense Council, now has a budget of over $100 million a year. Uh, so something needs to change. And, uh, and we have to uh, uh, ask ourselves afresh, uh, you know, what, what is an environmental issue? And if we answer it in the old traditional way, we end up just trying to do more of the same. And it isn't working. So I think we need to ask ourselves to answer that question of what is an environmental issue in a fundamentally different way. What if we say the answer, the basic answer to the question of what is an environmental issue is that it's any issue that is going to uh, seriously affect our ability to protect the environment. It's any issue that has a big impact on environmental outcomes, right? That's a fair answer to what is an environmental issue and what should be an environmental issue. And once you frame the question that way and ask the question that way, immediately you have to think, well, our failing politics is a huge environmental issue. It is an environmental issue that ranks at the very top of the list. Uh, the creeping uh, plutocracy uh, in our country, this ascendancy of money power over people power, this is a profoundly challenging environmental issue because it determines the outcome perhaps more than anything. Um, social justice in our country. Uh, all Mitch McConnell has to do when he wants to rally for, uh, opposition to Obama's uh, modest climate efforts, all he has to do is say it's going to cost jobs, it's going to hurt the economy, it's going to raise prices. Because we live in a country where half the people are living paycheck to paycheck. 40% of the families are just 
uh, low-income families with uh, incomes of 150% or less of the poverty line, uh, poverty mounting to an all-time high in terms of numbers, uh, inequality uh, returning to levels we haven't seen since the 20s, uh, and this vast social insecurity is a huge impediment to environmental uh, progress. Our own values, this uh, affluenza that we suffer from, the shop till you drop, our consumerism, uh, and, and the values of the materialism in our society, uh, the anthropocentrism in our society. Uh, Thomas Berry, a wonderful philosopher, uh, wrote that, um, that humans invented the concept of rights and then gave them all to themselves. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we have these values which are out of step with uh, with where we need to be headed. Um, our fetish of GDP growth. Uh, GDP just measures everything, uh, the good, bad, and the ugly, uh, and yet we worship at it. We seek to maximize it, and it, you know, it's as much damaging as it is helping us. We probably, in the phrase of Herman Daly, we probably reached the point where we entered the phase of uneconomic growth, uh, where in additional increments of growth cost us more than they benefit us. And uh, so we have a, a, a need to, um, uh, to think in a new way about the uh, environmentalism uh, and, and that we need for the future. And, and this leads me to this uh, legacy that we lost. Uh, and I want to sort of remind people who are as old as me, uh, that uh, the early environmentalism that we saw in our country was really rather radical. Uh, subversive, uh, I heard. Um, but um, the, first, the reality was radicalizing to uh, a lot of people. Uh, you may remember the Santa Barbara oil spill and a group of citizens who came together uh, after that oil spill and, and, and wrote a manifesto. And they said, they, we therefore resolve to act. We propose a revolution in the conduct towards an environment that is rising in revolt against us. Granted that ideas and institutions long established are not easily changed. Yet, today is the first day of the rest of our life. Uh, on this planet, we will begin anew. It was that kind of fervor that, uh, that we had. And many of the nation's leading environmental thinkers and practitioners of this period, and I'm talking now the late 60s and early uh, 70s, uh, they concluded that deep societal change is needed, that GDP and the national income accounts uh, were, fa were failing to give us good signals about where we ought to be going and what really uh, mattered, including whether our society was equitable and fair, and whether we were gaining or losing environmental quality. Most forceful anti-GDP statement I think that's ever been made was the one that uh, was in Robert Kennedy's last speech in 1968. Also at this time there was a, a palpable sense of planetary limits. You may recall limits to growth uh, came out in 1972 and sold over a million copies. The authors and many others in that era saw a fundamental incompatibility between limitless growth and an increasingly small and, 
and very finite uh, planet. Uh, scientist Paul Ehrlich and John Holdren, who has been President Obama's science advisor for the past uh, eight years, uh, argued in 1973 uh, for an economy that would be non-growing in terms of the size of human population, the quantity of physical resources in use, and the impact on the biological environment. Uh, joined with this uh, challenge to growth uh, was a call for us to break away from our consumerist and materialistic ways to seek simpler lives. These advocates recognized, as Ehrlich and Holdren put it, that with growth no longer available as a palliative in our society, one problem that must be fairly uh, squarely faced is the redistribution of wealth within and between nations. They also recognized the need to create needed employment opportunities by stimulating employment in areas long underserved by the economy and by moving to shorter work weeks. And they saw that none of this would be possible without a dramatic revitalization of democratic life. Uh, digging still deeper, uh, you may remember economy, uh, ecologist uh, Barry Common, who wrote uh, in his best-selling The Closing Circle, uh, he asked whether the operational requirements of the private enterprise economic system are compatible with ecological imperatives, and his answer was no. He believed that environmental limits would eventually require limits on economic growth. In the private enterprise system, he wrote, the no-growth condition means further, no further accumulation of capital, and if, if uh, as seems to be the case, the accumulation of capital through profit is the basic driving force uh, in the system, it's difficult to see how we can continue to operate capitalism under conditions of no growth. So, there we have, uh, back in the late 60s and, and early 70s, uh, a challenge uh, to our growth fetish, uh, a challenge to our consumerism, uh, a challenge to materialism, uh, a, a whole set of initiatives that, uh, uh, that we could uh, consider uh, to move us into uh, a, um, what we should, in a way that, that could, you know, over time, uh, heal our environmental problems. Well, uh, we basically abandoned this early radicalism, if you will, uh, in environmental thinking. Uh, I know from, in my personal case, we went inside the beltway and tried to make the system work. And we left these, this line of thought uh, behind and we didn't uh, uh, pursue it. Uh, we didn't pursue the need for, uh, for, for deeper uh, change. And, um, you know, I, I've in one of those books back there, there's a list of the things that we could be doing to implement uh, this, uh, these deeper uh, changes. Uh, changes in the nature of the corporation, changes in our values, changes in the, the measure of our progress, new indicators, um, a host of things that we need to reach out to to reinvent uh, environmentalism. I think in a nutshell, we need to rediscover the radical roots that were there uh, of our environmentalism in the late 60s and early 70s. So the new environmentalism should seek a, uh, 
deeper systemic changes than we've been pursuing in the past if we want to move beyond uh, the losing game that we're now playing. And we need to pursue these systemic changes to, to the point that we really emerge at, at, at some point in the future with a new system of political economy. Uh, we, we have now a system of political economy that gives priority to profit, uh, to growth and production, uh, and to the projection of national power, I would say. And we need to move to a new operating system that really does give honest and true and genuine priority to people and the places that we live and the planet. And we know a lot about uh, how uh, to move in those directions if we have the willpower uh, to do it. So in short, the new environmentalism that I would urge is one that focuses on building this new system of political economy. Uh, beyond today's rapacious and ruthless capitalism and beyond yesterday's uh, statist and centralized socialism to something uh, new and different, something that we really have got to build, to create. We know a lot about getting started. Uh, we know the directions that we need to go, I think, in a lot of, a lot of them. And, uh, you know, but it's an exploration that we need to undertake together before it's too late. Uh, I think the, um, the concept of a new system of political economy uh, is, is, a, is certainly uh, hard to get one's head around. And uh, what I've done in uh, America the Possible, the book back there, uh, is to break that down into about a dozen different transitions. Uh, which I will not go into at any length, but the transition in the nature of cooperation, the transition in, in values, the transition in our, what we measure as a means of, as a measure uh, of progress, and, um, and in our international uh, posture. Uh, and so we can discuss these transitions uh, when, I, when I finish speaking here, if you'd like, but uh, the, the fact is that we know a lot about the new directions that we need to take. Uh, and the one thing is absolutely certain, uh, we'll need a new politics if we expect to even begin uh, this movement. And, uh, uh, and, you know, I think so in a way that's part of the initial uh, commitment that we have to join in together across a broad spectrum, I think, of political life to, to uh, save our failing democracy. Uh, and, um, and I think that requires that all the progressive communities and instincts come together. And I've called it progressive fusion. You can call it whatever you want, but we need to bring all of the progressive communities uh, together. Right now, we're badly siloed. Uh, environmentalists are, are not uh, working that well together with other progressive communities. And the same can be said for a couple of dozen areas where progressives are active. They're not together. We need to come together. We need to build a movement, and uh, and we need to reach out to embrace uh, people that have not been part of the environmental community uh, hitherto, or big parts of it. And that really brings me to the second legacy from the past that I think we we need uh, to rediscover. I've been thinking a lot lately about the late 1960s and what inspired. Those of us who went into the environmental movement at that time, 
around the first Earth Day in 1970, what inspired us to, to uh, in, in these directions? And it was, as I think about it, it was America's black community that inspired us in these directions, and, and, and it struggled for civil rights uh, in our country. Uh, we grew up, so to speak, in college and law school in the civil rights era, the movement era. Uh, we saw what a movement could do. We saw what protests could do. Uh, we saw what making credible demands on society could produce. We saw what litigation could do in the courts to achieve civil rights objectives. And we saw in 1964 and 65 uh, what major, how major legislation at the national level could transform uh, our country. And that was really the inspiration for those of us who in the late 1960s, we wanted to do something analogous to that in the environmental area. And I have a very personal story about that. I was on the New Haven Railroad going into New York from, from New Haven, and I was reading the New York Times, and I saw one story about the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and some victory that they had won. And a few pages later, there was a story about environment. And I thought to myself, wow, we need an NAACP Legal Defense Fund for the environment. Why don't we go create one? And, uh, and we did. And it became the Natural Resources uh, Defense Council. Uh, so I, I tell the story just to bring home the reality of, uh, of uh, that era. Uh, and the tragedy is, that um, we didn't follow up with that connection. We didn't move immediately to build bridges uh, to minority communities uh, in the U.S. We went off in our basically middle class and predominantly almost all white uh, direction. And uh, so what a tragedy that we didn't build those bridges. Uh, and since that time, the relationship between you know, the civil rights community and the environmental community, the black community and the green community uh, has been at times strained. Uh, it has never been the vital link uh, that it should be. Uh, and, um, and, and I think we've, we've missed something by not coming together. Uh, and the time that it has come together has been more recently in this concern with environmental justice and climate justice. That is a concept which has fused uh, these communities and brought them closer together, but it's still not an intense relationship. It's still, there's a distance there, there's sometimes a skepticism uh, of what the environmentalists are really uh, committed to. And, uh, and so I want to uh, relate to you something that um, that I have found uh, fascinating. Uh, just as um, uh, what, what has happened in the environmental community is that some of us are calling for a rediscovery of radical roots. The same thing is happening in the civil rights community. With, with a number of civil rights leaders and members of, of black uh, community spokespersons uh, calling for rediscovery of the more radical roots uh, of uh, civil rights and, uh, and the needs of our minority communities uh, in, in the country. The, um, 
There's a, a wonderful uh, book review of a uh, book called, uh, in the Nation magazine, of a book called Defying Dixie, uh, The Radical Roots of Civil Rights. Uh, and in it, the author, uh, Glenda Gilmore, seeks uh, to reclaim the radical origins of the modern civil rights uh, struggle. Uh, and, um, and among other things, um, uh, she, uh, the review uh, quotes uh, Dr. King uh, in 1967. Uh, he wrote that we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace, but one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. You can change the word edifice to system, you know, it basically is the same thing that a number of us in the environmental community are, are saying. Um, the last years of uh, King's life were devoted to rediscovering the radical roots uh, of uh, the uh, environmental uh, community, I mean, excuse me, of the civil rights uh, movement. Um, uh, the review says that from an early date, the visionaries of the nascent civil rights movement recognized that the political repression and economic oppression of African Americans were intimately intertwined, especially in the Jim Crow uh, South. One evil could not be uprooted uh, without uprooting the other. And then there's the remarkable uh, collection of King's uh, speeches and essays that have been collected by Cornell West uh, in the new book called The Radical King. And um, in his introduction, uh, West writes that King's dream of a more free and democratic America and world had morphed into his words into a nightmare. Uh, owing to the persistence of racism and poverty and materialism and militarism. He called America a sick society. At one point, King cried out in despair, I have found out that all I have been doing in trying to correct the system in America has been in vain. I'm trying to get at the roots of it, just to see what we ought to have done. The whole thing will have to be done away with one day. And he said to his dear friend Harry Belafonte, uh, are we integrating into a burning house? In a letter that he wrote to Coretta Scott uh, in 1952, uh, King wrote that, I imagine you already know that I'm much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. Capitalism started out with a noble and high motive, but like most human systems, it fell victim to the very thing it was revolting against. Now the beauty of this effort in the black community to rediscover its radical roots is not so much the parallelism between what some of us are advocating for the environmental community, 
But the beauty is that if you go to that level of critique, the black community, like Cornell West, and folks like myself, are really saying the same thing. It is the same critique. It is that the system is programmed. The operating system that we live and work in is programmed for the wrong results and needs to be reprogrammed. And, and that is a marvelous thing because what we have really uh, is, a, uh, is, a, is a powerful basis uh, for dialogue, uh, a powerful basis for uh, uh, collaboration uh, between these two great movements in our country. Uh, and, um, and so here we are, uh, 45 years after Earth Day, and we find at last that there is a common agenda, there is a common language, there is a common critique uh, between this, uh, the, the civil rights community and the environmental uh, community. And it's been there all along. Thank you very much. would say 
that we agreed to throw all of our electoral votes to the winner of the national majority. Uh, whoever wins the, the majority in the at the national level gets all of our votes in our state. And we'll do that as soon as enough states do it so that uh, if we all act together, uh, we will elect the president through the electoral college. And, uh, uh, several, and, and we now have uh, uh, 10 or 12 states that have made this commitment. Uh, and, and more than half of the votes that we need uh, to uh, elect the president. We could uh, try to do something about the gerrymandering of our congressional districts by having independent, uh, independent uh, set, you know, neutral setting of, uh, of, of, of congressional district uh, boundaries. We could secure the vote for the people of our country. I mean, you know, we have this voter suppression going on, and. Uh, we need to guarantee the right to vote. We need to make it easy. We need to have uh, people um, uh, able to vote on other than election day. Uh, we need to have people register to vote. There should be automatic registration in, in this country, as there is in most democracies, European democracies. Automatic registration. You know, if you're 18, you're registered. You can opt out. You don't have to vote. You know, you can probably have even some process for deregistering if you want to, but the default position is you're registered. Um, I actually have a 10-point plan, plan for it. Uh, but um, the, um, I'll stop there. There are lots that we could do if we could come together to make our political system uh, uh, work better. Uh, you had in Illinois one time a uh, very interesting system of um, multi-member congressional districts. Um, we could have um, fusion voting. We, New York has fusion voting, Vermont has fusion voting. In fusion voting, uh, a minority party, a third party, can list as his candidate one of the candidates of the major party. Okay? That's outlawed in most states because the party is colluded and voted, uh, you know, outlawed. Uh, but what it does is it, it makes third parties viable. Third party voting for the third party is not throwing your vote away. Voting for the third party, uh, you can, you know, so, so the third parties can bargain with each candidate. Uh, so there's just a long, long list of political reforms that we could be making up. And, um, but the money is the first and foremost, I think. So what the Occupy movement proposed was a move from an ego society to an eco society. Besides the, what you've already suggested, what else do you propose would be a good way to move from an ego, E-G-O, to an eco society? Well, I think, um, you know, there, the first thing we need to do, it seems to me, uh, is to begin to talk uh, honestly uh, about the system failure, that our problem is systemic, that there are alternatives that we could move towards. Uh, and, you know, it was Margaret Thatcher who famously said, there is no alternative. And it's so famous that it became an acronym, uh, TINA. And, uh, and that's what an awful lot of people believe, that we're, we're stuck here. Uh, and the fact is that we're not. Some of the great things that are going on in our country today uh, you know, involve uh, beginning to 
worry about the nature of the system that, that, that we're trying to make work. And uh, in, in 2012, the most frequently searched terms in Merriam-Webster online were capitalism and socialism. And people are beginning to open up of the, an honest, legitimate discussion uh, of, uh, uh, of, of this issue of, of systemic alternatives. And we've been doing some research and collecting you know, the writings of people who've, who, who are trying to develop uh, alternative uh, systems. I think, uh, to me, a critical issue is to, is to challenge the, the growth edge. Um, we are so deeply caught in it. Um, we had a major presidential uh, candidate, not yet announced officially, uh, proposed the other day that we, you know, we strive for 4% annual economic growth into the indefinite uh, future. Well, we've had a lot of economic growth, and, and we're, countries now, in GDP terms, well above where it was in 2008 with the recession, and, uh, and we still have huge uh, problems with jobs and wages. So what's happened? Let's, I think the GDP has gone up about 150% in real terms uh, since, say, 1980. I think that's about right. And what's happened during that time, with all this growth, huge expansion in economic activity, um, wages flatlined, poverty went up to an all-time high in numbers and to its past high in percentages. Um, inequality, as I said, went back up to the levels we haven't seen in the, in the, since the 20s. Uh, life satisfaction flatlined. Uh, the measure of, of, of economic well-being called the genuine progress indicator flatlined the whole time. Um, uh, you know, measured happiness in the U.S. flatlined. Um, and the environment tanked. I mean, all in the teeth of this huge amount of economic growth. Now, there are lots of things that need to grow. Uh, and we ought to be focusing on them. We need to be you know, creating good jobs. We need to be dealing with this horrendous infrastructure problem uh, that we have. But, you know, those are targeted investments that need to be made by society. And we need a much stronger public uh, influence on the direction of investment. Uh, I think this is absolutely critical to, to the future, is to have a lot more public input. We are now making investment decisions almost entirely on the basis of financial returns. And yet we know that we have huge areas we could be reaping very large social and environmental returns uh, if we had more democratic control, more public control input on the direction of investment decision. Uh, right now, nobody would entrust that bunch in Washington to any control uh, of investment decisions, which you know, brings me back to the idea that we need to make political reforms. The other big thing I think we need to do is to build on the great things that are going on in our communities today, to bring the future into the present. There's a lot of ferment in the development of uh, different types of business forms, uh, Profit, not-for-profit hybrids, public-private hybrids, uh, social enterprises, uh, co-ops, enterprises that are uh, that are really com 
committed locally and rooted and, and responsible in, in, their, in their communities. There's a lot of this going on in the country. Commitment to sustainability, uh, to commitment to carbon neutrality, uh, to uh, lots of other things. Commitment to divesting from fossil fuels. Uh, and so a lot of the best things that are happening in the country today are happening in our communities. And uh, we need to, to build uh, on that. The co-op movement is, is very powerful in the country now. And uh, credit unions and local banking. Uh, let's, let's have state banks uh, and, and so on. Uh, and so I think there's a, you know, there's a lot we can do to, uh, to begin to talk about these issues and to integrate this idea that we should be searching uh, not just for reforms, uh, but for transformative uh, changes. Climate issue is so serious that we have to, you know, take what we can, we can get now. I, I think uh, so. We, you know, as the expression goes, walk on, on two legs. We need to be getting whatever we can get out of this system in terms of climate action. And I give Obama credit for finally beginning to do that. Uh, and um, and I think it had something to do with substituting. Uh, John Podesta for the current mayor of Chicago. Uh, it wasn't very positive on all this. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, but so, you know, do what we can do on the climate issue now, politically, take what we can get, it's overdue. Uh, but uh, over time, I think we're going to have to think about much deeper changes. If you have a society which is committed uh, you know, first and foremost to growth and to profit uh, and, uh, and to corporate ascendancy. Uh, and it's like uh, dealing with the climate issue is like going up a uh, down elevator, uh, escalator, a very fast one. And so over time we've got to adopt uh, some changes that push us in the direction of a, of a, new, a new set of policies, a new set of approaches, a new, a new economy. Uh, yeah, please. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Did everybody hear the question? The question is why is uh, so much animosity uh, in Washington? And I think it is a, it's a, um, it is a personal, uh, I mean, there's a person, interpersonal issue here. One thing that happened was they quit seeing each other socially. They all go home now. You know, we said you ought to spend more time with your constituents and get out of Washington. Well, they did, and now they don't see each other. They go to work on Tuesday and quit on Thursday and uh, go home, and, uh, and I think that, uh, that has uh, broken down the sort of social human contact that was once there. And, and I think it's extreme right now because of uh, the fact that we have a black president. Race. Race. I think it's just a big factor in, 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 in the way that uh, he has been dealt with. Uh, and, uh, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a tragedy, uh, but I think it's there. Um, the, um, that, um, the other thing that uh, has happened is that there are almost no um, competitive congressional districts anymore. I mean, out of 
430 some odd congressional districts, uh, you know, they're, I think it's only about 10% or so that are genuinely competitive. And so what that means is that the party is going to, one party, whichever party is there, is going to, to win, whether it's a Republican district or a Democratic <coughs> district. And so they both, um, they both are, uh, are going to appeal uh, to their base only, and uh, and 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 we can we have seen what uh, extraordinary appeals uh, uh, they can make to try to rally the base, uh, and so that it's a complicated thing. I don't think um, you know. I don't think I know all the reasons why uh, why Washington has become such a uh, not only gridlock but uh, unpleasant place, but I think it has. The days of you know of, uh, camaraderie uh, uh, and working across the aisle uh, are gone. The um, when we started in the environmental area, it was very bipartisan. I mean, we couldn't have done Muskie could not have gotten the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act done unless he had the support of John Sherman Cooper and Howard Baker and, and others uh, in the, in the great uh, Senate of that day. Yeah. Hi, so you talked about the need for different progressive groups to, to come together and, and find a coalition. And I know there are some really great eco-feminist thinkers like Margaret Atwood at play in the world, but how do you propose that um, like the modern third-wave feminists really partner with the ecological movement? Right. Well, I, the thing that, um, that I think is so important is, is for um, in terms of the environmental community, to, to face up to, to the fact that they really are liberals. I mean, they really are, uh, and they won't sort of admit it. Uh, and, um, and, 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 um, and, you know, relatedly, um, the, the leaders have got to uh, decide that they, there was a wonderful article in the Stanford Social Innovation review about what produces real change in society. And uh, it happens uh, when you know, you, the, all the different parties, or a broad spectrum of parties, come together across previous divisions, uh, form a common agenda, create backbone organizations that transcend the particular issues, uh, develop a common a messaging, a uh, common communication strategy. All of these things are going on in the right in our country, and they're not going on in the left, so to speak. So these communities uh, remain uh, isolated uh, from each other. Um, it, it, partly it's a reflection of the organizational structure. Um, you know, we, the, um, the, the conservatives are organized uh, across issues. Uh, and then, uh, the American Enterprise Institute, the Competitiveness Institute, the uh, uh, Heritage Foundation, they embrace all the issues and, uh, and, and we are, on, at least we, we uh, on the sort of progressive side are, um, are all in sort of separate organizations devoted to different, uh, different causes. And, um, well, I think it's really up to the leaders, in a way, of these organizations to, to decide that they're going to take the initiative. And there are some groups that have uh, made a, an effort to bridge in, uh, among all the issues. This, 
of Center for American Progress, uh, Podesta's whole group, uh, has done that. The uh, Institute for Policy Studies in Washington is a, has a broad range of, of, of concerns. Uh, but um, you know, the environmentalists still remain pretty much in their silence. towards these government of our environment. But um, two things always come to my mind that I don't see covered. One is population explosion globally. Um, and um, secondly, um, uh, just that our mainstream media doesn't cover the environment anywhere near in proportion to what you know it should. Uh, so could you just comment on those? Uh, well, that's the media issue is, uh, is really appalling. Um, when we started uh, in 1970, the newspapers were, were full of, uh, of stories. Uh, you know, we, we had a tremendous uh, and generally positive uh, press, and it was a hot beat for reporters. Uh, and I remember Walter Cronkite had a series, Can the World Be Saved? And there was... Uh, we looked at some of the footage uh, recently of, of Cronkite's earlier, uh, and, and he would go on at length about these issues. And yet, um, you know, uh, I, the Evening News would not talk about climate change until very recently. Uh, just wouldn't talk about it. The, the weather would be going uh, in really strange directions, a global weirding. And, uh, and, and NBC would bring on their weather channel guy who would say, um, you know, well, the jet stream has moved down south. Uh, and, uh, and that would be it. Uh, they've finally begun to acknowledge uh, the reality of this uh, climate issue. And, uh, uh, but it's been, a, it's been a real omission. And I think it, uh, uh, it's still, uh, still very, very limited. We had 400,000 people, including a delegation from this college, march down the length of Manhattan uh, in the most tremendously diverse group of people. Uh, uh, all kinds of uh, groups were there, uh, gender-based groups, uh, environmental groups, uh, poverty groups, uh, tax justice groups. Minority groups of all types, and and, it was, and and we hardly got any press. Um, and, you know, so you do you, you have to you have to uh, worry uh, about uh, what, what the media, which is now all concentrated in the five big conglomerates that own movies and TV and cable and print media and other things. Um, so, um, the first question was not about media. Population. Uh, um, well, a lot of tragedy. Uh, I mean, here's something that we, you know, know a lot about what works internationally. If you put um, some real resources into maternal and child health care, into the status of women and elevating the status of women and, and, and employment opportunities for women, education for girls, uh, non-coercive family planning services, 
know, and you put that package together and, and, uh, uh, and fertility rates go down. And uh, we could be doing a lot uh, in a very non-coercive uh, way uh, to address the global population problem, which is, uh, at one time, we, th we thought we knew enough to think that, you know, we could uh, stop the population, have the global population level up at eight and a half billion, uh, but we're going to shoot way beyond that now. And we have been underfunding the programs that can provide those things that I ticked off, badly underfunding them internationally. And the U.S. is not, the U.S. is at the bottom of the OECD, of the, the old OECD, ECD, uh, in terms of its giving to international programs uh, and uh, as a percentage of GDP. And, um, and you know, and we, we have uh, been uh, warring against, uh, in some administrations, against the population programs internationally uh, because people have uh, uh, conflated these programs uh, with the uh, right to life issue and the pro-choice issue and it's gotten all balled up in our politics and, uh, and, and we have a population issue here at home and we haven't really learned how to discuss it without sounding like, you know, border vigilantes or something. I mean, we have a uh, uh, we have a huge population growth in our country, and it's only, only it's half immigration, roughly, I think, and half internal. But, uh, you know, we need to think about the uh, uh, population and, and, and deal with it in a responsible way. We actually know how to do it, but we're just, just not doing it. And part of the reason is that the confusion of these issues with the, the pro-choice, pro-life issue. What do you think the chances are of the landmark legislation uh, passed in the 60s and 70s being greatly watered down or repealed? Um, well, you know, we've been through a lot of craziness, and the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act have held up pretty well. Uh, and uh, I don't see um, Let's put it this way, uh, I hate to be partisan. No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I try not to be partisan. Uh, but, um, you know, if we elect some of these people who are threatening to run for president uh, as president and, and, and the Republicans continue to control both houses, um, it'll make us the finest supporters of the filibuster you've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> And because uh, they they are they threatened crazy things, you know, shut down EPA. Uh, they, they, you know, you you, you, you criticize government, you you, uh, you make fun of government programs, you outsource things, defund things, and you do that long enough, and pretty soon you really don't have a very good government anymore. And we're heading right in that direction. I think we've lost a lot of confidence in the, in the federal government. And it's not any accident that uh, this has been a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Mr. Davis. We'll take one more question. Oh, I'm glad we got Gordon in there.
problem. Uh, and the U.S. is basically just one component of that. And if we consider that the leadership for a systemic change uh, is simply not going to come in this country from the Congress. The senators and the congressmen are all spending all the time raising money. They're not legislating when they're in Washington, and then they go home, as you say. So the leadership isn't going to come from the Congress. So if, if this systemic change is going to occur here, who are the leaders? Where are they today? And how can we encourage them to move to the front? And secondly, uh, if that works, uh, do we have the clout, this country, to bring off global change? Or is there going to have to be uh, a transformational, culturally specific uh, dynamic in every one of these major regions of the world? And about the prospects of that. Well, I think that, um, I think, uh, you know, I've talked most about the U.S. and the, the truth is that, uh, that we, uh, uh, we've already seen a lot of important steps in the directions that I <coughs> talked about uh, in Europe. They're under threat in Europe and a lot of places. But, um, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, we, we need to look to other places to see things, see some very good things happening. There's a, um, a, a chart that um, uh, has been done in a book called The Spirit Level, and it plots uh, an index of social disintegration, uh, which is a composite of about a dozen different measures against inequality in the society. And the fit on the curve is almost perfect. The more inequality you have, the more social uh, disintegration you have across a broad front. And the countries that are leading, uh, way down here at the bottom, are the Nordic countries uh, and Netherlands. And, and I think we could learn a lot from them. The U.S. is off the chart at the other end of that line, literally. Uh, and, um, I think uh, you know you're you're an old China hand, as we would say, uh, and you know that we can't get very far uh, on these issues uh, without, uh, certainly on the climate issue, without uh, without the Chinese. And now India, which is making a big commitment to coal, and we're going. In. So what do I, I think? This whole I haven't talked about this, but uh, to be optimistic, uh, I, I think deep change is going to be crisis driven. I think we're going to have some very serious crises. I think the climate change could be one of them. And uh, the that's a tsunami uh, right offshore now. And uh, it, it's going to, it could create some, uh, some dramatic changes. We've had a period where warming has been slowed due to the sort of uh, absorption of the heat from in the oceans. And we're going to run out of that at some point, and uh, soon, I'm afraid. And uh, so, uh, I think we're going to, another economic crisis, so we haven't done anything to prevent another big economic crisis, and it could be global. So that's the good news and the bad news. I, I think we're going to, uh, 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 it was, um, 
as Milton Friedman said, only a crisis produces real change. <laughs> and, uh, and our job, as he said, uh, is, to, uh, is to develop the ideas and have them in currency when the crisis hits. And uh, I hope uh, we'll all contribute to that. Thank you very much. Thanks to everyone for coming, thanks for your attention, and Gus will be available to talk and to sign books. <laughs>